Well, who, who is he? Who is he? That, that's the question. It is the nonpareil question of life. Who is Jesus? And it is the nonpareil question of life because if you get the answer to the question wrong, you're going to hell. Sobering, isn't it? Two and a half years into the ministry of Christ, <laughs> his disciples are still grappling with this. Who, who is this guy? So this morning we're in Mark, the eighth chapter. If you have your New Testament turned there, we'll be doing the old-fashioned thing of actually looking at the text from the text. When Mark, the eighth chapter, opens, Jesus has a great crowd gathered together. And Jesus said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with, with me now for three hours and they haven't eaten. That's not what he said. He said, they've been with me three days. Lest you think the preaching goes a little long here. Three days and nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their home, he's not... He's not just exaggerating about this, that they have nothing to eat. He said, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Jesus understood their bodies are depleted at this point. They are physically drained. And some of them have come from far away, and his disciples answered, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them. He gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. They had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over seven Baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately, he, he got into the boat with his disciples. And he went to the district of Dalmunatha. And the Pharisees came. And they began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, and he got into the boat, and he went to the other side. <laughs> and when they got to the other side... The text says in verse 14, now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. How, 
how can they keep forgetting their bread? And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Not discussing the leaven, the spiritual truth. Discussing that they didn't have any bread. They didn't have anything to eat. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Are are you kidding me? Somebody says, well, you know, this account of the feeding of the 4,000, that's just Mark's rendition. You remember in John 6, the feeding of the 5,000 and and all of that. It's really the same thing. This is just a different take. And it's another example of how, you know, the Bible is not exactly right. There are mistakes here in one One gospel says 4,000, the other gospel says 5,000. Be careful. Be careful because casual criticisms fall short when the text is read. Jesus said, why are you talking about not having any bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? In a sense, Jesus is saying there, where have you been for two and a half years? Where have you been? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said unto him, Twelve. Ah, just like John said in his gospel. John 6. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said unto him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not get it? And then... The very next miracle, he's going to heal a blind man. But I want to ask you, who's the blind here? Who's blind? The man who physically can't see? Or those who spiritually have been looking at the Christ for two and a half years and they can't see their own nose in front of their face. They cannot See what is going on. I want to tell you something. Jesus is judging this generation. And he said, you've had enough. And he judges them for good reason. They could be judged to condemnation because they had ample evidence to be judged and condemned. But let me tell you, if there was ample evidence to condemn them, they had ample evidence to believe. They had sufficient evidence to believe. When Mark opens his gospel, I don't know when was the last time you read the gospel of Mark. Go home. Read through the gospel of Mark. It's short. I want you to be impressed with what's going on in these first eight chapters. When Jesus gets to this point and he asks them, Do you not get it? It starts off in Mark chapter 1. We're we're introduced to his divinity as he shows them the sign, healing the man 
with an unclean spirit. A miracle could only be done by the power of God. And then immediately, another miracle. We saw Jesus in Mark chapter 1. Mark says, hey, he did something that you cannot explain from an earthly vantage point. He cast an unclean spirit out of one. And then we went to the home of Simon's mother-in-law. She was sick, and Jesus healed her. And then they began to bring everybody from that village to him. And the text says, he healed them all. Well, that's a great sign, isn't it? Isn't that enough to believe? That's not the end of this. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 40, Jesus encounters a leper. And suddenly, this terminal disease, this dreaded disease of leprosy, suddenly, Jesus shows up and he does the incredible. He heals the leper. And then in Mark chapter 2, from the very first verse, we find out that Jesus has the power to heal the paralytic. I'm telling you, one sign after another, after another, after another. And now the man who's lying on a mat since he was born, his friends, his four friends, bring him to Jesus. They can't even get into the house where Jesus is. What friends this man had. What friends he had who would carry his mat for him. I want to just mention this to you. If you go through life, And you have some friends who will carry your mat for you. You get down on your knees and thank God for that. Those are real friends. And I'll tell you what real friends do. They carry their mat for their brother and they take their brother to Jesus. And they don't give up. And they couldn't get in the house. That's okay. We'll go in from the top. They climb up on the roof and they dig their way in. What an amazing miracle. Do you not yet believe? In the third chapter, Mark says, here, here's a man with a withered hand. Everybody knows him. This this is no fake thing. Jesus heals him. In the fourth chapter, there is the calming of the storm on the sea. Everybody is seeing. He not only can heal disease, he can speak to the elements, and they obey him. In chapter 5, he's casting out another demon. Jesus has the power over the realm of darkness. In chapter 5, Jairus is calling for him because his daughter is sick. Jesus is making his way through the marketplace, trying to get to the home of Jairus. In In the meantime... As he's going through this crowded marketplace with people everywhere bumping into each other, shoving each other, Jesus stops and he says, hey, somebody touched me. (laughs) And his disciples turn the question on him at this point. They say, are you crazy? Somebody touched you? You you can't turn around in this marketplace without somebody. No, somebody touched me. And the woman who had the issue of blood for years believed that if she could just touch the hem of his garment, she would be healed. And she was. As was the daughter of Jairus. And in chapter 6, you have the feeding of the 5,000, recorded not only by John in his gospel, but by Mark also, before he records the feeding of the 4,000. 
I wonder how many times Jesus is going to have to feed thousands of people before his disciples stop getting hysterical when they don't have bread. Then in chapter 6, he's walking on the water. And every disciple was grabbing his smartphone and taking a Walking on the water. Who can do that? And all of the sick in Gennesaret were brought to him. And there was the Syrophoenician's daughter. And Jesus commended that woman for her faith. And there was the healing of the deaf man. And now the feeding of the 4,000. And the healing of the blind man. Are you kidding? And Jesus said to the blind man, don't even go to your village. Go home. And then beginning in verse 27, as Blake read for us so well this morning, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? revelation of Jesus to the world has already been more than sufficient. More than sufficient. Sorry, in Italian you say sufficiento. More than sufficient. His disciples, two and a half years into the ministry, have not yet confessed him as the Messiah. So I said, oh, well, they, they confessed him as the Son of God. They said he was the Son of God. Yeah, it's that messianic thing they're having trouble with. They get it, but they don't. They believe in him, but they doubt. They're at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, you know, is the, it's at the northernmost part of what we refer to as the Bible land of Israel. This area once was called Paneas, Paneas, P-A-N-E-A-S, Paneas. And you'll see it referred to sometimes as Peneus. It's because of the Greek god, the Greek deity that was called Pan. You remember Pan? Half man, half goat, played the flute. The Pan flute, I'm sure. 
Tradition says that Pan was born in one of these caves in this area. It was called Panaeus. But later, Caesar Augustus gave this area to Herod the Great. And when Herod the Great died, you remember what happened. He, he divided up the pie. He sliced up the pie, pie into four parts. Guess who got it? Philip did. And, and so Herod the Great, because this had been a gift from Caesar Augustus, he, he gave the, the area of Panaeus a new name. It was called Caesarea, Caesarea, Augustus Caesar. Not to be confused. Not to be con confused with Caesarea, a little further to the south. Well, for a long time, the pagans had not only temples to Pan, the god that they believed was born in one of the caves there, they had other altars and shrines and temples and deities there. This area was an area of pagan idolatry. Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi. This is an area that was Panaeus. It was renamed to honor Caesar. It was given under the rule of Philip, the Tetrarch. And so it is called now Caesarea Philippi. It is an area of paganism. And Jesus, as he's there, no doubt beholding all the shrines, the altars, the temple, he says to them, but who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? I, the Son of Man. Who do people say that I am? And some say you are Elijah. Some say you are John the Baptist. Some say, Matthew tells us in his account, you are Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. Why? Elijah? Well, remember Elijah, he... He had a rather unique matriculation from this life to the next one, riding on a fiery chariot. But also you remember in Malachi, what Malachi said, before the Messiah comes, who's coming? Elijah. And so there, the Jews were anticipating the coming of Elijah before the Messiah would come. Some were saying, hey, this is Elijah. He's coming. That means the Messiah's coming one day. This is Elijah. Some are saying, no, it's Jeremiah. Why would they say Jeremiah? There was a tradition that developed during the Maccabean period about Jeremiah that said that Jeremiah, <clears throat> as he was anticipating the Babylonian invasion, remember Jeremiah begins prophesying about 630 is the round number, 627 is the correct number, 627 B.C., he begins prophesying, 
And, and he's telling them of the coming judgment, of the coming invasion, doom, gloom, and destruction. Judgment is coming. The Babylonians are coming. They're going to be knocking on the door 606 B.C. A tradition developed that Jeremiah, in anticipation of that, went into the temple before it was destroyed and took the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant and hid it, hid these vessels in Mount Nebo. And the idea was that before the Messiah would come, Jeremiah would come again and he would bring these vessels out so that there could be the Messianic temple and the Messianic reign. And some were saying, Jeremiah has come. And some were saying, no, it's John the Baptist, because you know what happened to John the Baptist? He lost his head. And some say, no, he's come back from the dead. But then Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Ladies and gentlemen, the evidence is more than sufficient. Beware of the opinions of others about Jesus. Everybody's got one. To the the Greeks, Jesus was (laughs) nothing. He was shameful even to them. He, He was a joke. Supposed to be king of kings and lord of lords and He comes from this little Galilean town. He's got this ruddy band of 12 guys who are following him around, and most of them don't have any education at all, and wow. Didn't amount to much. His own people didn't accept him. Ends up being rejected. They demand his death. The Romans put him to death. They didn't think anything about him. The Jews, no. They didn't, they didn't think much about him either. Not their idea of a king. Not their idea of the Messiah. Who, who do people say that I am? Everybody has to answer that question for himself. And folks, I want to I, I tell you something this morning, and if you don't remember anything else from this lesson about the non-parel question of life. Remember this. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about Jesus. Because when you stand before God, the only thing that's going to matter is what you think about him. Everybody else will answer for himself. Everybody answers for himself. And Peter is the one who answered. And he said, thou art the Christ the Son of the living God, Matthew tells us in his account. Thou art the Christ, Mark affirms, Peter said. Matthew gives us that detail. The Son of the living God. Let me tell you, he's surrounded by all these pagan deities at Caesarea Philippi. Dead stone and wood and carvings. You're the son of the living God. 
Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You're the Christ. And then Jesus said in verse 30, he charged them to tell no one about him. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, that's not the totality of the message. You're going to find out in the next verse why. Why did he charge them not to? Thou art the Christ. Yes, but you're not ready to preach yet. Why? Because you don't have the whole gospel yet. Verse 31 says, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Underline it. I'll tell you, every preacher ought to pray that that could be said of his preaching. He said this plainly. There's no misunderstanding what Jesus was telling them. I'm going to Jerusalem I am going to be rejected. I am going to suffer. I am going to be killed. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. He said it plainly. And immediately, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I want to tell you something. Peter was all about Jesus being the Son of God. He was not anything about Him being a crucified Savior. He was all about the man. He was stumbling all over the plan. The plan is that Jesus is going to die in our place. He's going to be raised on the third day. And that is going to become the ultimate declaration of God to the world that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't have a gospel to preach without the plan. And the plan was his death and resurrection. So this morning, I'm saying to you that after 2,000 years, life's nonpareil question remains exactly the same. Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? Two and a half years into the ministry, this is the first time, the first time that the disciples of Jesus are going to come face to face with the reality that he's not just a son of God, he's not just the son of God, he is the Messiah who will die for our sins 
and live eternally. Reigning in heaven. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I, I'm saying to you, of all the questions in life you're going to have to answer, there is none, there is none that will surpass this question. Who do you say that Jesus really is? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God? You have a penitent heart and you're ready to give yourself to the Lord and baptism to be united with Him in His death and to be brought up, united in His resurrection to walk in a new life. What a wonderful opportunity today for you to make that sweet confession and for you to taste the riches of His goodness. If you're a child of God, and somewhere along the way, you've lost your vision of who He is. We beg you to come back to Him while we stand and sing.